Thanks for downloading A Good Read on the Books and Authors podcast. Find more information on our website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4. Hello, welcome to A Good Read, where I'm joined today by the historian Helen Castor and the sustainability activist Rob Hopkins. Rob is a co-founder of Transition Network, which supports thousands of communities in becoming more resilient through increased use of local food and local enterprise and a range of other approaches. He's the author of The Transition Handbook and The Transition Companion, and he speaks widely about the importance of local economies and of, in quotes, engaged optimism as a response to the world's challenges. He was recently voted one of Britain's 50 new radicals. He blogs at transitionculture.org and says that before this programme, he hadn't read a novel for at least three years. Well, Rob, we're shortly going to be finding out what you think of the novels you've now had to read. But first, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. And welcome to Helen Castor, who's an historian of medieval and Tudor England and a fellow of Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge. Helen's book, Blood and Roses, a biography of the 15th century Paston family, was longlisted for the 2005 Samuel Johnson Prize and the following year won the English Association's Beatrice White Prize. Her most recent book, She-Wolves, The Women Who Ruled England Before Elizabeth, was widely selected as a book of the year in 2010. And this year she wrote and presented for BBC Television a three-part series based on it. Helen is also one of the presenters of the Radio 4 programme, Making History. And Helen, what have you chosen as a good read for us? The book I've chosen is The Spire by William Golding. It's the story of a dean of a medieval cathedral, Dean Jocelyn, who has had a vision that it is his role to build a great spire, a 400-foot spire on his cathedral. And at the beginning of the book, we get an immediate sense of the euphoria and the ecstasy of this vision. But we also immediately learn that it's a vision built in thin air, if you like, partly because his chapter don't support him. And much more literally, his master builder tells him immediately that the cathedral has no foundations and it is an impossibility to build the spire he dreams of. He decides to press on anyway. And the story that unfolds is the story both of the building and of what happens to Jocelyn as the building goes on. Well, Rob Hopkins, you've read the book. Yeah, I loved it, actually. I found it something that, from the moment it started, it was kind of drawn into this world that became more and more and more oppressive. As the spire builds and the weight builds on the building, the four pillars at the centre of the cathedral that hold the building up, that the weight becomes such that the pillars are singing under the weight of it, then that pressure starts to play out in all kinds of different places as different characters come under the pressure and he becomes more and more mad as the book goes on. The thing that I found very interesting was because was it's written in that stream of consciousness kind of style, uh, that there were some bits that I had to go back over and read a few times. There were some things that get thrown in that are actually quite important, which you kind of, if you're not really, really following every single word, some of them you miss. But um, for me as well, there's all the characters, but actually the cathedral comes through as one of the main kind of characters. And you can almost sort of touch the stone and the wood and the lead. And the, uh, it's very, very powerful in that way, I think. Yeah, I think there's a brilliant sense of this building work happening because, of course, it does go on largely through the will of Jocelyn, through this absolute mad determination. I think this is an exhilarating novel. I think it's a very alarming novel to read, and it's it's 
quite weird in some ways. I mean, from the moment you open it, from the moment you read the first paragraph, you're swept into the world of Jocelyn's mind. And I was trying to think at the beginning, is he mad? Because he's, he seems mad, or is he just someone who's really very obsessed and determined? Or is Golding taking us into a mind 700 years ago, and this is what minds were like back in the day? I mean, if I can just read the first paragraph to give a sense mm. of what we're all talking about, because it's... It sets the scene really well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a superb opening paragraph, isn't it? It's, he was laughing, chin up and shaking his head. God the Father was exploding in his face with a glory of sunlight through painted glass, a glory that moved with his movements to consume and exalt Abraham and Isaac and then God again. The tears of laughter in his eyes made additional spokes and wheels and rainbows. And although... You know, you realise, OK, this is actually an impressionistic picture of a man looking at a stained glass window and the light pouring in at him. In most novels, I suspect, the author would then step back a bit. Things would calm down and you'd have you know, a bit of stuff explained to you. Golding doesn't do that. And I think, I mean, until the very, very end when things are a bit more spelt out. And, and for me, Helen, that's kind of part of the pleasure of this novel, that you don't always know exactly what is going on around the Dean. I'm so pleased you read the opening because I think it's extraordinary just from that very first sentence with Jocelyn laughing, as you say, and yet from that first instant it's so clear that there's something very uneasy, almost sinister, about Jocelyn's euphoria, his ecstasy in this idea. And as you say, what Golding does so superbly is show you the world through Jocelyn's eyes and yet at the same time you see what Jocelyn doesn't see and you see the things that he almost sees and you see the things that he sees but suppresses. It's a very multi-layered vision of this extraordinary claustrophobic world that somehow gets more and more claustrophobic even as the spire reaches up into this vast sky. It gets, as Rob says, heavier and heavier and more and more enclosed. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to choose this book is both because it's so extraordinarily powerful, but also because of the historical context that you mentioned. I think one of the things that Hilary Mantel has been doing with her breathtaking work over the last few years is reminding us that historical novels can be acute views of the human condition that transcend what we often think of as historical novels as kind of costume drama. But I think she's reminding us of something that's been there for a very long time. I don't think many people would immediately think of Golding as a historical novelist. And yet some of his greatest books are set in the past and in this case in the distant past. How, how accurate is this? I mean, it's supposed to be a kind of version of the spire being put on Salisbury Cathedral in what, the 14th century? In the 14th century. I mean, is it... OK, Golding doesn't never names it. But does it feel authentically 14th century to you? To me, it feels both authentically 14th century and extraordinarily timeless. I think that's the magic that he mm. creates in this novel. I gather that it probably is very closely based on Salisbury. Salisbury Spire is 400 feet high and Salisbury doesn't have the foundations to support it in just this way. So the pillars at Salisbury do bend in the almost terrifying way that Golding evokes. Not only do the stones sing, but then the pillars start to bend. There's a terrifying scene, horrifying, where Jocelyn is at the top of the spire, crouching with his face against a pinnacle. 
not quite at the top of the spire, hasn't been finished yet, and he's looking down at the checkerboard floor below and he suddenly realises that he's periodically seeing an extra square and that the, the spire is moving. So it gives you, as Rob says, that powerful sense of the fragility of medieval architecture. And yet there's something so resonant about human response to stress, to faith, to the power of will and imagination that transcends the 14th century. It's both of its time and completely beyond it, I think. It's interesting you say, because actually I started reading it and I didn't know anything about it. And when I started reading it, and actually for about the first 12 pages, I actually thought it was now. It could have been any time. And it was only, there were certain things that then started, I thought, oh, okay, this is a long time ago. But actually the, the beginning and the stuff that goes on in the cathedrals, it could actually, although of course there's no building inspectors, there's no health and safety, there's no uh, <laughs> c- c- cathedral budget team going, uh, it's going to cost how much exactly? How long is this going yes, to take? Yes, and I don't think health and safety would at all approve of the number of deaths that are happening no. just, just out of the corner of Jocelyn's yes. life. I, I loved the kind of, uh, um, th- there was a particular bit where he has the argument with because uh, he, he plays lots of different characters so sometimes he's a very sort of humble kind of uh, father of his flock and sometimes he's a very sort of weak cowering kind of character the bit when the master builder says look we can't do this anymore this is just ridiculous it's not going to work we've got to stop and he just bullies him he just backs him into the corner and basically says it's going to happen and you're not going to get any more work after and i've cancelled other jobs you've got and actually you finished this building because nothing else is you see this whole kind of side of him that just sort of rears up and says this is going to happen actually what a way to deal with builders (laughs) (laughs) did you like him i think this rob is a question because my feelings and my uh sense of empathy with jocelyn fluctuated very much sometimes i was totally there with him wanting this spire to be built and at other times i was thinking this man is not only mad but dangerously mad and he would be poisoned to know no, I didn't like him. I didn't like him at all for, at any point. Or anything. I, I think the only time there's near the end when he's very frail and fragile and very, very poorly and running around and getting into mischief. And then uh, I think, you know, you, you can't help by being moved by the situation he's in sometimes at that point. But I found him a fairly odious character from the start, really. I didn't really feel but that didn't, sympathy for that him. that didn't bother you at all? No, because the, the, actually the bigger story is, is the building going on and all the stuff going on around. There's a whole kind of cast of characters that are going on around him and all the builders coming and the poor guy who lives in the grounds getting all the grief off the builders coming in and out. And If you like Jocelyn or if you find him repellent, I think it's still a completely compelling story. Well, we've been talking about The Spire by William Golding. And... Rob, your choice of a good read? Well, my good read is The Worm Forgives the Plough by John Stuart Collis, which was first published in 1946, and his reflections on his time during World War II spent working on farms in the southwest of England, which somebody suggested to me about three years ago. I was doing some writing at the time about horse ploughing, the use of horses in agriculture. Someone said, have you read The Worm Forgives the Plough? And I, and I started into it and I was just held from the beginning. So Collis is a writer and a teacher, I think, and he was, at the beginning of the war, he signed up for, for service and was told that he was to serve in the UK. So he asked if he could go and work in agriculture. He spent the first couple of years of the war working on farms in Dorset and then the last couple of years working uh, in woodlands uh, somewhere else. And he said he wanted to become thoroughly implicated in the fields instead of merely a spectator of them. And what I love about it is it's one of the most beautiful bits of writing about 
agricultural life at the time. He also captures that transition, if you like, between horse-drawn, more people-centred agriculture to a more industrial form of agriculture at a time when both of those things were running alongside each other. The way he writes is really kind of modern in that it's almost like a series of blog posts you know, with fantastic names like Meditation While Singling Mangolds and a Colloquy on the Rick and him turning up at a farm knowing absolutely nothing and everyone taking the mickey out of him for the first little while and then him learning how to plough, him learning how to make a hayrick, him learning how to do all these things. And for me, one of the key things about it is that, certainly with the work that I do, it's about changes in society and often we feel actually we're incapable of change we're incapable of learning new skills in a short period of time this book is a beautiful demonstration of how you can pick up those skills really quickly and he writes so wonderfully i think about at a time when people were talking about the idea of a leisure society and oh in 20 years we won't have to work anymore and he writes so fantastically about why physical work matters uh, and how it's important it is to balance that with the mind and and and, and kind of creative things so you can sort of almost smell the countryside of the time and the sweat on his brow and what he does it's i it brings that whole world to life it's an extraordinary book i think helen caster did you feel that you could now be go out and do a bit of harrowing and a bit of plowing as a result of having read this well i feel dreadful saying this because it's so compelling listening to rob talk about the book but i have to say this was not a book for me at all i realized reading it that as a historian, my principal interest has always been people. And what I missed from this book completely was what I would have been interested in, which was the people of the world that Collis is living in. His wife, I think, is mentioned twice. We have no idea where she is or what she's doing. We have no real idea how he's come to be on this farm. The other people who he's working with are to me little more than ciphers and I started out thinking well my problem is that I'm not sufficiently interested in the agriculture and that's my failing clearly and I ought to try harder and Collis talks a lot about sublimating his ego to this process of physical work and so on but the more the book went on the more I felt and uh, forgive me Rob this this is not not very positive about your favorite book but i felt almost that i was in the presence of a solipsistic ego rather akin to dean jocelyn but without the extra layers that golding gives us because it was all about him it rather than sublimating his ego it's to me it felt like the egotistical sublime it was it was about nature as experienced by him but he was then telling me that everybody feels the way he and I respond rather badly to being told how I feel. Helen, I agree with you about the fact that the people he works with, his absent wife, even his dog, of whom he's rather fond, but, you know, just hardly crops up at all. Once or twice it's mentioned somebody's worried it's chasing sheep and he says, my dog wouldn't chase sheep. I don't think he is particularly interested in animals of any sort, human or otherwise. But I just loved the way he wrote about the land, about the land and about working the land and about... You know, whether ploughing by horse was better than ploughing by tractor and all all that. I I thought it was very, very powerful. And I was really interested in the fact that he does open that out. It's not pure description, although the descriptions are probably the most, for me, thrilling part of it. But he, he does open it out to question how we live and what role the land plays in how we live. He's got a lot of sometimes provocative a couple of rather batty ideas, but they're all interesting, I think. Then there's this little light breeze of humour running through it, I thought. And 
I suppose what I really liked about this more than anything, having grown up amongst farms and knowing farm labourers a bit, is that he absolutely doesn't romanticise farm labour, does he? There are some fantastic characters who, who come through. They are lightly sketched in, though. They are very they? lightly sketched in, but it's it's there's there's the lovely bits as well when he's writing about technology and and that sort of time when when all these new things were coming along and his reflections on which of these things should we pick up and which should we not. Having spent the whole day in the field planting potatoes by hand, actually, do you know, what? if someone makes a machine where we can do that, that's fantastic. But then also bringing in the various kind of harvesters and stuff and the impacts and the work that they get rid of. I think there's some really weighty kind of issues that that he brings in and looks at there that I really uh, I really appreciated yeah. and there is a central issue which is that he's talking about uh, and he comes back to this and comes back to this that every time a labour saving device is invented actually it doesn't save anybody labour What the farm labourers are still working just as hard as ever it's just that there are fewer of them all that's happening is that every labour saving device is making more and more money for the farmer but he's also then saying which I think is a very interesting idea and one worth pursuing, that rather than have fewer people working the same long hours, we need to think about what the leisure culture means, which everybody was talking Mm. about after the Second World War, and have people working shorter hours, but more of us doing it. And he does have this possibly not workable solution that we should all divide our life doing a little bit of ploughing and broadcasting and so on, broadcasting in the literal sense with seeds. And that, and was, that was very interesting, the linguistics of clodhopping and broadcasting and the real meaning of these words. Mm. I mean, that, that was genuinely eye-opening. But weren't you, weren't you at all intrigued by the idea that a good life would involve that? It would involve us all out in the fields for a bit and then coming home and thinking and writing a poem or two? I was too busy being annoyed that he was telling me that I, I should feel exactly the same as him, I think. I realise I have responded rather badly <laughs> to this book. Uh, it's not I should emphasise that there's nothing to enjoy or appreciate you know I, I can see all the qualities you're describing and I could listen to the two of you talk about it for <laughs> hours but I became resistant to the fact that it was all channeled through one very particular vision that was so uncurious somehow about the experiences of the other people round him I missed that sense of looking through other people's eyes than his own as uh, as well. Somehow. I think you also kind of get, get the impression that a lot of his time was was quite solitary. You know, there's a whole thing about how how mentally you, you cope with a whole day on your own hoeing in a field or something. And particularly the second half of the book, because the first, the first half is about him working on the farm and the second bit is basically him on his own in the, in the woods for three years. Weeks go past when he doesn't really even see anybody else, you know. And uh, that those kind of reflections about, about woodland and the seasons in woodland and learning learning about the different trees and what their use is for is fantastic, I uh, think. But then there are other moments that, that pass by in a flash that I would love to have heard more about. So you get the sense of him coming in, as you say, this this rather klutzy figure because he doesn't know how to do anything. And, and as you say, very endearingly, he sets about trying to learn. But I had in my mind's eye a picture of this chap sort of coming in and saying, right, I'm going to build a rick, and all the others standing around going, oh, my God. <laughs> and, and he mentions in passing there that they call him Mr Collis. And he gives almost no further comment. And I'm thinking, right, socially, that's so interesting. Here he comes, coming in, Mr Collis, to work on the farm. I want to know more about that, about the social divisions and distinctions. And it passes in the blink of an eye. I think you probably want a a book that he didn't write is the the deep problem there. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking about The Worm Forgives the Plough by John Stuart Collis. And... 
now to my choice of a good read, which is a, a novel again. This is by an Argentinian writer called Marcelo Figueras, and the novel is called Kamchatka, which is, at first glance, a bit perverse because Kamchatka is a place in somewhere in northeastern Russia, and this novel is, in fact, set very firmly in Argentina. It's set in Argentina in 1976. There's just been a military coup. Our narrator is a young boy, a ten-year-old boy. We never learn his name. Whose parents are leftists. I mean, they're not doing anything as exciting or dangerous or worrying as planting bombs or anything like that. But they sit around the kitchen table. They probably write the odd pamphlet there against this government, and they realise one day that they're going to have to just go on the run. There's no choice for it. They're going to have to go into a safe house in the suburbs. And we see all this through the boys. Point of view as he, his younger brother, his five-year-old brother, is known only as the midget. He and the brother and his parents get into the two CV car and rattle away into this safe house, and it's a story about the family, about how they survive this terrible, terrible pressure, which of which the adults are totally aware and that the children can sense. I mean, the younger boy starts bedwetting again and. You can feel the strain of the parents trying to hold the family together. I think it's just a superb novel. I mean, it almost makes me cry every time I read it. It makes me laugh and it makes me think. Three out of three ain't bad, Helen. Three out of three from me too. I have to say, when I started the book, I felt a little unsure because I wasn't quite sure how. The layering of voices was going to work again. The narrator is both his ten-year-old self and his adult self looking back. And early on, he says, "I'm convinced that all time is simultaneous." And I thought, "How? How are the? Is this dual voice and this perhaps slightly portentous statement of a philosophical approach to time going to hold together?" And within two or three chapters, again, very short chapters, rather, as Rob was saying about the John Stuart Collis book, blog post-sized chapters. I was so powerfully drawn in, and this weaving together of the ten-year-old voice and the adult voice into a whole that I not only believed in, but grew to like and feel so involved with, was amazingly powerful, um, amazingly moving. And, and there are moments that sound genuinely 10-year-old and also then make you think about your own perspective on things. I was very struck by one sentence that reads, his grandfather has just shot an opossum in a, in a tree trunk. And he says, shotguns sound like cannons. I can't imagine what cannons sound like. And there's that sense of a child trying to make sense of a world in which he doesn't yet have a great range of experience and yet which of us do know what cannons sound like and yet we have an idea of what cannons sound like and that to me was very very moving quite apart from the politics which are of course devastating Rob what did you think well about I th it? it's quite it was quite similar in some ways to the spire in this kind of that there was this similar sort of building sort of oppressive sense around them and you kind of knew you kind of get the sense because from the very first chapter you know the the, the first chapter is the ending of the book really which is then what come, then comes back to at the end and sort of changes ever so slightly. But it's like going to see Titanic. You know, it's not going. To, you know, it's not going to have a happy ending. You're just wondering how it's all going to play out. And I found myself. I actually woke up one night in the middle of the night when I was about halfway through this book and thought, oh, the car. They have this really quirky old 
Citroen car that's sort of held together with sticky tape, it sounds like. And it's like a comedy character in the book is this car. And they've moved away, they've changed everything, they've changed their names, they've changed their house, they've changed their jobs, they've changed everything, apart from this really distinctive car. And I woke up in the middle oh my God, the car! They're going to get caught out because of the car, they haven't changed the car, how silly. But it manages to kind of balance that sort of sense of you're just looking over your shoulder all the time and who can they trust and, and, and when's it going to come? Uh, but then there's also some really, really comical bits like you were mentioning about him bedwetting the bit where actually they go out in the car and and the midget keeps falling asleep all the time because each of them have got up and put him on the loo in the night and they reckon he's sort of walked more during the night than he has during normally during the day and there's some like you were saying some of the lovely observations about childhood the one about how he likes to he calls himself a claustrophile because he loves when things get too much for him he likes to go down into really confined little spaces and there's a lovely little bit about cupboards Inside a wardrobe you can hear everything. It acts as a sound box for the whole house. You discover layer upon layer of noises, the cistern in the bathroom, the hiss of the immersion heater, the TV in the distance, the hum of the fridge, the movements of everyone in the house, the conversations you're not supposed to overhear. On humid days you can even hear the creaking of the wood in the wardrobe itself. And I remember that as a child, like playing hide-and-seek and stuff. And it was very, very evocative. I, I, I loved it. I was gripped all the way through, as you say. And it is such... A lovely family, isn't it? Don't, I mean, they're under enormous stress, but this great sense of love and the mother. I mean, she's wonderful to me. She's sort of ideal mother figure. She, she's useless at housework. <laughs> she can do it if she, she has to, cook. but she, she absolutely it's can't dreadful. cook under any circumstances whatsoever. And, and the kid says about her, the boy says, um, I thought Mama was beautiful. All boys think their mothers are beautiful. But in my defence, I have to say, mine had the searing smile a superpower Stan Lee would have paid good money for. Whenever she knew she was in the wrong, like the time I asked her to give me back the birthday money she'd asked me to lend her, she would use the searing smile and something inside me would melt and I'd suddenly feel too weak to insist. I just think you have a sense of... I mean, the poignancy of this novel, it seems to me, is that these are such... Far from perfect, but such lovely people and such a lovely setup being destroyed because it is also very much, is it not, a political book? Mm. They're so real and it's so haunting that we never know their names. We only ever know the names that they adopt in hiding and they become this make believe family, as it were, but the reality of what they are is being torn apart. And the relationships, as you say, are so real, so moving. The mother and father. The boy who we only know as Harry, which is his adopted name after Harry Houdini, and his brother the midget. And the relationship between the two of them was so instantly recognisable to me. I have a 10-year-old son and and I, I know these boys. And the other relationship that I thought was particularly moving was Harry's friendship with Lucas, the 18-year-old who comes Mm. to stay with them, who's also on the run. And initially, Harry is utterly hostile to this interloper. And gradually it becomes a relationship of love and trust. But Harry never articulates that. The change is never articulated. You just have that shift occurring. And that seemed to me very genuinely 10-year-old, very real uh, and very moving. And, of course, it's the goodbye with Lucas that, that is one of the most powerful moments in the book. One of the things that I was left wondering, because we only see it through through Harry's eyes, there are things that that, that aren't that clear. And the bit when he runs away, he, he he runs away for the day to go and find his best friend from his previous life, and arrives there, and the boy's mother's like, no, he's not here, and and he basically gets sent away. And and then shortly after that, they have to move on again very quickly. And although there's no explicit link made between those two events, I was left wondering if somehow there was if if there was a connection there between those two things. 
It's just left like that, isn't it? It's just left like that. We've been talking about Kamchatka by Marcel Figueres, which is translated from the Spanish by Frank Wynne and published by Atlantic Books at 8.99. Also on the programme, we were talking about William Golding's The Spire from Faber at 7.99 and The Worm Forgives the Plough by John Stuart Collis, published by Vintage Books at 9.99. To my guests, Helen Castor and Rob Hopkins, many thanks. And to you, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this programme. You can find more readings, drama and reviews at bbc.co.uk slash Radio 4.